0: This week's parsha is Mikesh, which means at the end. And we begin with Joseph still languishing a prison. It's been two years since he had that fateful encounters and dream interpretations of the cupbearers and the baker. He's alone in prison. And now Pharaoh, the, uh, the leader of the, the king of Egypt, himself has two very dramatic dreams. The first dream, he sees seven really healthy, robust cows Uh, coming out of the Nile and starting to graze. And then he sees seven other cows emerging from the river, very gaunt, very ugly, and they consume, the ugly, um, famished cows consume the seven healthy and robust cows. That's dream number one. And dream number two, the same night apparently, there's seven um, stalks of grain very healthy, very robust, and again, seven stalks of grain that are very thin and very very weak, they grow up and they consume the healthy ones as well. And Pharaoh wakes up in the morning, and he had these two very vivid dreams. He's very disappointed, he's very agitated, he calls all the necromancers, all the uh, soothsayers of Egypt, all the wise people, he tells them the dream None of the dreams seemed to satisfy him. In uh, the midrash, we're told that some interpreted that he'll have seven daughters, and then seven daughters will die. Uh, further, he'll uh, or he'll conquer seven countries, then he'll lose those countries. But whatever, all the interpretations didn't suffice. And then the cupbearer, who was uh, two years prior uh, in incarcerated with Joseph, he. Responds with the line. He says, "Well, I want to mention my transgressions," and he retells the whole retells the whole story. I was with uh, this young uh, Hebrew slave, and he tells him a story that we had our dreams. My, 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 I had a dream. The baker had the dream, and he successfully interpreted those dreams. And he's a good candidate if you want interpretation for your dreams. He's a good candidate because he's. Uh, He's a proven commodity in that area. Now, it's interesting that Rashi points out here that the cupbearer, at the end of last week's partial, the cupbearer, though he was instructed by Joseph to uh, speak out in his favor to Pharaoh, he forgot about it, but he also consciously forgot about it. He, Joseph said, hey, you know, I'm here, I'm innocent, I'm abandoned, and he forgot about him because it seems like he was disinclined to bring Joseph in front of Pharaoh because he knew what kind of influence Joseph would wield. So even when he's telling Pharaoh about Joseph and Joseph's ability to interpret dreams, he besmirches him. He says there was a there was a Hebrew, he's different, he's young, he's a slave. He's kind of highlighting all the things that would make Pharaoh not impressed by him uh to try kind of minimize the ability of Joseph's uh Joseph to flourish. So Pharaoh hears about this Joseph and Verse 14, we're told, Pharaoh sent and summoned Joseph. They rushed him from the dungeon. He shaved and changed his clothes and came to Pharaoh. And this verse is always used as an example of redemption. Joseph, that morning, he woke up, obviously unaware of Pharaoh, or Pharaoh's dreams, or something like that. And where was he? He's in the same dungeon. He's been for years and years and years. By that night, he was already appointed viceroy of Egypt. Uh, he's shaved and clothed, and he has everything taken care of, and he has uh, the vision of how he's going to end up fulfilling his destiny of being the king, that's already there. And it's it's always used as an example that we think that we're going to have a lot of kind of room to plan for our redemption, whatever redemption we may have. But the truth is, Yeshua HaShem Keharaf Ayin, the redemption of God is like the blink of an eye. One second, you're like in one situation, in the bowels of the prison. The second later, you're being ushered out, you're shaved quickly in front of Pharaoh, you interpret the dream skillfully, and he says, okay, you're in charge of the country. I'll just, you know, I'll just be the figurehead. So he comes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him a dream. No one can interpret it, but I heard that you can interpret it. And Joseph tells Pharaoh, this is a remarkable statement, He says, no, I don't interpret it. It's all It's all about God. God happens to be kind of chummy-chummy with me, and he lets me understand what the dreams are, but I have no personal skill or uh, acuity in this in this area. And this is really remarkable, where Joseph is given really a golden opportunity to show his ability, and he would be encouraged, it's kind of like an interview, a job interview, to be king of Egypt. So he'd be encouraged to kind of augment his contribution towards the result by saying, well, what do you mean? I, I practice witchcraft and wizardry And sorcery and dream interpretation for many, many years. And I have lots of expertise in that area. And so he says, no, I'm nothing. What am I? It's just all about God, even though that may uh, logically would seem to imperil his, the impact and, and, and the benefits he could get from successfully interpreting the dreams. Pharaoh retells the dreams. And it's interesting if you actually compare maybe this is a, little, a little bit later, how the dreams actually happened versus how he interpreted them. They're slightly different. It seems like uh, uh, Pharaoh also gave his little, own little spin on it. And Joseph interp- interprets Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dream thusly. He says, well, the two dreams are really one dream. The real dream, and the mighty is telling Pharaoh what he's going to do to you. The seven healthy cows are seven years of plenty. The seven healthy uh, stocks are seven years of plenty. And the seven emaciated cows and stalks are seven years of famine. And the Almighty is telling what, to you what he's going to do. He's going to have seven years of tremendous plenty in the land of Egypt. But then the seven years of famine are going to overwhelm the preceding seven years of plenty. And it's going to be so bad, just like those emaciated cows remained emaciated even after they consumed the healthy cows, so too, during the seven years of famine, everyone's going to forget the plenty uh, uh, of the seven years that preceded it. Uh, And now, he also tells Pharaoh that the fact that it was repeated twice show it means that the Almighty is going to begin this immediately. It's not going to be sometime in the future. It's right now. It's instant. As for the repetition of the dreams to Pharaoh two times, is because the matter stands ready before God and God is hastening to accomplish it. To me, this is really remarkable, because Pharaoh is not the only one in our story that had had two dreams. Joseph, as well, last week's parsha, had two dreams that foretold of his ascendancy to grandeur and to being a king. He had the dream where the where the eleven stalks. 11 bundles were bowing down to his bundle, and the 11 stars and the sun and the moon were bowing down to him. So Joseph also had two dreams, and we know he just gives us a rule, whenever there's two dreams that both highlight the same event, then it means it's happening right away. But the truth is, it didn't happen right away. Joseph was 17 when he had those dreams. Now, when he's standing before Pharaoh, he's 30. So there's a 13-year gap between the dreams, and the dream's coming to fruition. As we know, spoiler alert, this story's going to end with Joseph being ensconced, enshrined as king, or second in command, but the functional king of Egypt. So to me, this is a little bit of an inconsistency. On one hand, Joseph is telling Pharaoh that whenever a dream repeats twice, it means it's happening right away. Whereas Joseph's dream himself happened twice, but it didn't really happen right away. There was a 13-year gap, which is significant. And I think the lesson is, Joseph is now recognizing how everything that happened to him in the interim was really part of God's plan. You can imagine. Joseph has a dream. He's going to be king. The next thing he knows, he's being sold into slavery by his own brothers after they said they agreed to not actually execute him. He gets sold from one person to another. He ends up in Egypt in a foreign land. He gets accused. He's imprisoned. He's, he has nothing going for him. And in his mind, he's thinking, how is this at all going to contribute towards uh, towards the plan? And yet, now, he's finally ushered out and an old sense sensed him. All that was part of the plan. Indeed, when God does uh, give someone the dream twice, it does happen immediately. Just sometimes the process is a long process, but all that was part of the process. Had Joseph not been sold as a slave, he wouldn't be king. Had Joseph not been in prison, he also would would not have been king. And by the way, had the cupbearer fulfilled his pledge and spoken to Pharaoh and lobbied for Joseph's, uh, clemency, then Joseph also wouldn't be king because he would have already established himself in some other, uh, facet of society, maybe going back to be slave of Potiphar, but he wouldn't be there unemployed and ready for a big job. So Joseph actually is now realizing that every element of his descent and his shame was all steps that got took, immediate steps after the dream to bring about the ultimate ascendancy into becoming king. Now, after Joseph interprets the dream, he actually gives uh, Pharaoh some unsolicited advice and gives him a road map of how to survive and to plan for this eventuality. Now, Pharaoh, seek a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed and let uh, let him appoint overseers of the land he shall prepare for the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Gather all the food in the cities, amass all the grain um, in the cities, and to safeguard them. And the food will be reserved for the land. It's interesting that Pharaoh, that Joseph instructs Pharaoh to look for a discerning and a wise man. You would think, if you have to undertake this monumental project of uh, amassing all the grain, Organizing it, uh, filing it—you uh, know, just just—it's it's, it's a massive organizational plan. You need someone who's very efficient. You need an administrator. You don't need a wise person. It's interesting. He says you want to ish chacham a really wise person. It's a very strange qualification. You would need a community organizer. That's what you need, you need someone who's very organized, who could file everything away and have you know uh, uh, efficient methods to stockpile food. Uh, in enormous, unthinkable quantities uh, to to be able to prepare yourself for the pending famine. And I think there's a very deep lesson here. We're told in the Mishnah, Who is the wise person? Someone who sees the future, someone who anticipates and plans for the future. Now, it's very hard for us when there is plenty and there's so much plenty you can't each imagine what to do with all the plenty to uh, to only partake sparingly with the awareness that sometime down the line there's going to be a need for preservation when there's a lot we kind of fall into a certain mode of of, of consumerism of say, of saying well listen there's so much now there's just unbelievable, Plenty now. Why are we planning for doomsday scenarios? It so, it's so much further down the line. It's you know who's to say that you know we cannot have a good time now because of some event that's coming in the future? And the chacham, the wise person, is someone who today is already planning for the possible uh, future events that uh, uh, that are go- that are going to happen. And therefore, even during the seven years of plenty, Joseph kind of had government takeover, sorry about that, of, uh, of of industry to ensure that even during the seven years of plenty, the people were eating very sparingly so that they could maximize uh, the, the amount of food that they're going uh, to put away. Of course, there's a lot of good lessons to take from that. And I'll just extend this to something we've spoken about in the past, We've spoken about once, and there was a Mishnah that described the five students of Rav ben Zakkai. One of them is a Rohess Anola, who sees the future. That, that was his, that would, it was his ability. And the way we understood it at the time was that this is really a, a lesson about life. Life is, you want to become wise. Well, what does wise mean? Someone who sees the future, anticipates the future. Well, what, what's the, what's this future that we're trying to anticipate? Well, there's a shared future for all of humanity and that is that we die. That's a shared feature. The Talmud tells us that the best ammunition against the Yetzirah, against the evil inclination, is to bring up, to hearken about the day of death. Because the day of death is this demarcation in the sand where if we have that in our consciousness, it's very valuable to determine what is really a priority, what's a value, what we should focus on, and what's something that's just transient, that's just ephemeral, that's just kind of in this existence, we can't take it forward. We we, we talk about mitzvos. Mitzvos are essentially stockpiling food for our soul, for a time when there's a famine. Now, the food that we need today is physical food. There's plenty. But in Olam after we're dead, we also need food, but then there's an absolute famine. You can't bring a slice of pizza with you. You can't. So what are you going to eat? Well, you have to have prepare stockpiles. Well, what's that? So we're told that, if, that a mitzvah is a consumable, not for your body, but for your soul. And in fact, the 613 mitzvahs because your soul has a wide pallet of food that it likes, that it needs to sustain itself. In fact, Zohar tells us, the Talmud tells us a variant of this, that the, the human, and indeed the soul and the body, are both comprised of 613 parts. And the reason why we have 613 mitzvahs is directly corresponding to the 613 parts of our existence. Each mitzvah corresponds to a single organ or limb or sinew, uh, spiritual and physical. And thus, when you do a mitzvah, you're not consuming anything now, but you're like Joseph. You have an eye to the future, and you're stockpiling food for the time when there's a famine, i.e. you need food, and you don't have any because the food that you have is not 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 growing as as it was in the times of uh, of the plenty. You can't do mitzvahs in the world of You could do spiritual activities, but a mitzvah is an act born out of conflict. And it a mitzvah is an act that your soul identifies with, but your body doesn't. I always tell people that you know people who shake a lulav on 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 the holiday of Sukkot. The one thing they hope more than anything else is that none of their coworkers see them. Because they're taking a really expensive lemon. It's not a lemon, it's a citrus. And they're taking a branch. And they're just, they're shaking it. And it's such a bizarre, from a body-centric view, it's strange. And I think if you showed, if, if you had our soul and you showed it some of the things that our body does, it would look at it equally as strange. Because we're, we're comprised of these opposites that are fused together in one. And we have to choose which one of those elements of our existence, we're going to favor. So we do, we act, you know, we're intuitively wired to tend to the needs of our body. We're perhaps intellectually wired, should we pursue that intellectual mode of thinking to take care of our soul as well. And thus, the mitzvahs are there, they're all acts that are very natural, very normal for the soul, very intuitive for the soul, but we don't feel it because we don't have that, we're not linked on a sensory level to our soul. So just like when you, you, no one needs to be reminded to eat breakfast, right? Because your stomach starts groaning unless you have it, right? But to study Torah, we could live for years without noticing anything's wrong, but our soul is starving. Now, in the future, when the body is shed from us, you put the body in the ground, you have a soul now, that's the only thing that dominates your life, That's that's where the senses are now, and now you're hungry when you don't have food, but if you haven't, but it's a famine. You have to stockpile it beforehand to prepare yourself for that time. Oh, Rabbi. Okay. Sandy's question is: I mean, with the world to come, you're saying there will not be bodies there. Will, uh, because isn't there something about the resurrection of the dead and the bodies come out? Yes, there is. Good question. There is a body, but it's as insignificant to you on a sensory level as your soul is to you now? It's a very good question. Um, and it's not an easy one to answer like uh, just right here, right now. But the simple answer is that yes, while you have a body, just like you have a soul today, people, you know, if I if I placed uh, a little sensor inside your uh this is a temple I gave I've given recently. Um, suppose a child did not know that uh, whether or not they remove their appendix, right? would you know? Any one of us know right now if we have an appendix or not. There's no way you would know. If if you were told, oh, you when you was young you had a, your appendix removal, you would know that. Otherwise, you would have no idea whether or not you have an appendix. Or you can't feel it. The Talmud tells us that our soul in our current existence is it's like hanging out in the chambers of our innards. It's like it's like in our gut. So I think that it's a nice little parallel to say that your soul—you're as aware of your soul as you are of your appendix. There, maybe right, your appendix is there. You don't feel it; it has no, it has no impact, so to speak, on your senses. Olam Abba, So this world, where body we feel our body, where uh, you know that's kind of our instinct and our intuition. Our soul is there, but we don't feel it. Olam Abba is the opposite. It's almost as if our body is moved into the slot of our, of our appendix. Our soul is all that we know about. We, we won't eat because we don't even know about eating. Like, it, doesn't, it won't even make any sense. To us. So you have a body, yes, but the, the body is not at all a factor in governing your consciousness. So Pharaoh really likes Joseph's plan, and he suggests we need a really wise person for this. There's no one better than, than Joseph, and Pharaoh tells him, You're in charge of my palace. By your command shall my, all my people be sustained. Only by the throne shall I outrank you. See, I've placed you in charge of all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh moved his finger from his hand, placed it on Joseph's hand. He dressed him in garments of fine linen, placed a gold chain upon his neck. They gave him a royal chariot. They started proclaiming before him. And he was appointed over the entire land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh, and without you, no man shall lift up his hand or foot in the land of Egypt. You're in charge. Pharaoh renamed Joseph Tzofnas Paneach, which means someone who uncovers the hidden. He gives him a wife, Asnath, And Joseph is 30 when he becomes the vice king of Egypt. Okay, so Joseph starts his plan right away. The earth starts producing during seven years of abundance, incredible amounts of grain. He gathered all the food of the seven years that come to pa- that came to pass in the land of Egypt and placed food in the cities. The food of the field it, around each city he placed within it. Joseph was an expert not only in organization and in wisdom and foresight. He also understood that in order to ensure that the uh, produce will not spoil, he actually kept... He stored the produce in the same earth in which it was grown. Thus, every city had its own storage house to place the grain, which, as parenthetically, which would call into question the notion proposed this year that the pyramids were there to store Joseph's grain. Well, if so, there should be pyramids around each city. To my knowledge, there's only pyramids in one area. Joseph amassed grain like the sand of the sea in great abundance until he ceased counting. There was so much, there was no number, you could put an unfathomably large amount of of grain. And we learn about Joseph's family as well. Joseph had two sons uh, when the year of famine had not yet set in, and that's important. Uh, One of them, the first one is Menashe, because God made me forget all my hardship and all my father's household. And the second child is Ephraim, because God made me fruitful in the land of, of my suffering. So there's a few interesting points here. Number one, the Torah stresses that Joseph had two sons prior to the arrival of the years of famine. Now what's the significance of telling us that Joseph's sons, uh, they were born prior to the years of famine? So Rashi tells us that the lesson here is, in fact, it's halacha, that someone is not allowed to procreate during the times of famine. The idea is that when people are suffering, When people are suffering, someone cannot say that I'm going, even someone like Joseph, who you're you're sure that, you know, even if it comes down to it, he he will be one of the people that will be allowed to partake of the grain, right? Even if it comes down to these people diving of starvation, Joseph is part of the leadership. But still, even Joseph as a leader, he has to identify with the suffering of the average Joe. And that's a lesson that's Universal thought the Torah. But Moses, right? Moses, what did he, what characteristic did he display right from the very beginning? The fact that when other people are suffering, he doesn't want to be living in his palace. So he sees people suffering. He goes out and suffers alongside them. And Joseph, indeed, displayed that. We'll see a little bit more how he displayed that even more. But uh, he showed that he is going to... There's a meaning did people procreate at all. Who knows? But it means is that he deliberately tried to lessen his own personal pleasure while other people were suffering. Now, the name Menashe, it's really interesting, uh, the name that he chooses. Let us read that again. Uh, He named his first boy Menashe. Why? Because God made me forget all my hardship and all my father's household. Why? Menashe is from the word Nashani, which means to forget. Now, it's interesting that... Uh, This is something that he's kind of highlighting. Is it a good thing for Joseph to forget his father's household and his hardship? Is that a good thing or not? You would think that it's not a good thing. If Joseph's going to become acculturated to the Egyptians, he's going to start living the way they live, and he's going to start forgetting his father's household, then he's in grave danger of losing his destiny and his identity. His destiny is to be someone who, despite being submerged in the Egyptian culture and the way of life is still going to retain the lessons of his household. But I think what Joseph is is saying here is that he indeed didn't lose, didn't forget about his father's household and his background, but he believed that he lost some of the vividness uh, of some of the tangible uh, just awareness that he had, because that's just the way it works. If someone abandons or leaves or is exposed to an entirely opposing way of life, it's very likely that at least on, on some levels, they're going to start forgetting uh, and losing touch, so to speak, with the way of life that they still believe in, but it's not as real as it was anymore. And I think this is something we underestimate. We underestimate the power of of groupthink, the power of mob mentality, the power that our ideals, our beliefs, our priorities are actually not ones that we craft for ourselves exclusively. It's very often the product of our society. If you look at just what people believe about issues of morality, issues of uh, social issues, uh, that should be Independent of what society says about them, the truth is they are heavily impacted by society. And thus, it's possible in 1950 versus the year 2000 or the year 2016, there's dramatic changes in public perception about ideas, just because not because each one of them independently arrived at the same conclusion, but because that just you know, people are much more influenced by their surroundings than they would care to admit. Uh, you know, we talk about what life was like under the Greeks and under the Romans, and we look at it as barbaric. you know, if, if someone was a petty criminal, uh, they would be thrown in front of the lions to the entertainment of the jeering masses. To us, we look at that as barbaric and indeed it is barbaric. But I, I think if if we were honest with ourselves, it's it's you know, it's as sad as this is to admit it, but the truth is, if you and I were there, we grew up in that society, do we really imagine we'd be a crusader for justice and, and calling out the barbarism for what it is? Probably not. You know why? Because a lot of people there that they, you know, because they're impacted by that, what the society tells them. We all are a product of acculturation. And that's it has a benefit because, you know, there are benefits for that. But even Joseph is admitting the fact that he's forgetting a little bit and he's worried about that. And thus he names his child, Nasha to remind him that you're forgetting. And that too is a very powerful lesson. And, you know, we have, Miranda was celebrating the holiday of, of Hanukkah. And uh, if you look at the prayer that was instituted for the holiday of Hanukkah in the Al-Anissim, uh, um, uh, the, the verse says is that the Greeks wanted us to forget Torah. Torah forget Torah. And the question you may ask is, what, wait a minute, what do the Greeks want to do? They wanted to build some gymnasiums, give some a dose of Hellenism. Who's to say that that's going to cause us to forget the Torah? And I think this is an exact parallel to this story. Joseph didn't forget it. He was told over You see, when he gets back to his brothers, he's still one of them. He didn't become an Egyptian first. He remained a Jew first. But he's, he's aware, and he's caught as of the fact that there's some sort of, because he's involved in so many other things, He's losing some of the vividness of his father's household. The Greeks, what they wanted to do to the Jews is not to make us forget Torah entirely. No, you can have a Torah. But just have so many other things as well, and get involved in so many other things that will cause their the awareness and the tangibility and the realness uh, of Torah to be slightly diminished, to be slightly forgotten. And once we're once we're on that path, so to speak, it's very easy for us to lose it entirely. So the seven years of abundance are over. The seven years of famine begin. There was famine in all the lands, not just in Egypt, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land hungered, the people cried to Pharaoh. They said, what are we going to eat? And Pharaoh says, go to Joseph. Whatever he tells you to do, you should do. Now this statement, whatever he tells you to do, you should do, is a very inclusive, exhaustive statement. Whatever Joseph says to do, you should do. So what do we imagine Joseph told them to do? Rashi says something very surprising. Joseph would tell them to be circumcised. What is going on over here, right? They want bread, and Joseph says, okay, sure, just there's a rite of passage here. You have to be circumcised as well. What's Joseph's motivation? Uh, what, what's this idea? You know, we've seen this before where Jacob's children are trying to circumcise non-Jews. Like, that's happened before. Um, but what, 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 what's Joseph's motivation here? We don't see anything else besides for this, but we don't see really Joseph going the kind of the last mile. So you, all we know is that he made them all circumcised. One of the answers giving is that he's aware that his brothers are going to be coming. And if they show up circumcised, that was going to laugh at them. But if they're all circumcised as well, they don't really have much to talk about. I, I also think it's important for us to remember that at this time, how many mitzvahs do the family of Jacob have? They don't really have so many. They have the mitzvah of circumcision primarily. It's the first one. Also the mitzvah not to eat from that part of the animal. There's really not a lot. So it's almost as if Joseph is giving over the entire body of Torah, so to speak, to the Egyptians. But what's his motivating factor? I want to suggest that um, it wasn't just some sort of symbolism. He wanted them to be circumcised, just so he could say, I got I circumcised you know, 30 million Egyptians. Put that as a bumper sticker. <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think there was more there was more to that. Joseph really you know, submerged himself, immersed himself in this project of saving the world with the grain and saving the Egyptians. And he really, you know, he was very efficient, very obviously intelligent, like we said, chacham uh, wise in ensuring that he does a great job. And when someone is investing so much in helping other people, they start to like them and start to care for them. And Joseph became very worried that he's caring only, so to speak, for their body and not for their soul. And therefore, because Joseph was motivated to help them, he said, how could I not help them in other areas of life as well. So he said, you know what, you want to have your food? Do your mitzvah, i.e. recognize something about your soul and about God and about the bigger picture in the world for your own benefit. Not because I have this quota of how many circumcised Egyptians I want to have. No. It was because he genuinely cared for them and he invested in them. It's hard for us to see people, good, decent people, believing Nonsense, or some degrees of nonsense, that you know that someone died for their sins and that's going to save them. These are good people, and a lot of them. And it's very sad to see decent people, good people, you know, believing things that aren't true. It's unfortunate, and I, and, and I don't know what we should do about that. We should shouldn't set up a mobile circumcision station out there. But I think certainly, let's find out the way to go about that. But I think certainly, if we have care uh, for for humanity we have to make sure that well we have to try to do whatever we can to help people achieve you know uh, you know come closer to truth Joseph because he became in such contact with in such contact with these people he was just motivated to try to help them Joseph starts doling out the uh, the grain and now Jacob in Israel or in Canaan, they are become aware that there is provisions in Egypt, so he sends his children um, to go to Egypt to purchase some grain. Who does he send? He sends the same ten sons that sold Joseph into slavery. They're the ones who are coming to, to Egypt to... Uh, to try to acquire and procure provisions uh, to make it through the famine. Now, Jacob was very careful not to send Benjamin, because Jacob is very protective over Benjamin. He's terrified. This is the last remaining part of his family from Rachel. Rachel's dead. Joseph is gone. He doesn't want to let Benjamin to go on this harrowing journey. Who knows what's going to happen? So the brothers arrive in Egypt. They go back of the line. They meet, finally they meet Joseph, and they came and they bowed before him, their faces on the ground. And now Joseph, obviously the dream is being partially fulfilled. Joseph sees his brothers, he recognizes them, but he acted like a stranger towards them and spoke to them harshly. He recognized them, they did not recognize him. So this is interesting. Joseph, after all, was their brother. And yeah, they knew he was gone, but they knew he might still be around, but they didn't recognize him. So why not? So first of all, this is many, many, many years later. We're talking about at least 20 years later. So he's disguised, he has a beard, he has all the Egyptian clothing. Also importantly, we know from later on in the story that he speaks through a translator. They don't actually hear his voice. He speaks Egyptian to the translator who speaks to them in their native tongue. But I think there's... It's an Egyptian name, right. But I think I think there's, there's there's more to this here. I think that the brothers never never considered the possibility that Joseph's dreams would actually be true. It was in their mind, they they when you don't even consider something as a possibility, it's hard when that possibility is actually true to be awakened to the truth of that of that sentiment. They sold Joseph as a slave. He was a good for nothing as a slave down to Egypt or down to whoever he's going to end up with, there's no way that he rose actually to the top to become the king. And thus, in their minds, they never considered it. They never imagined that such an eventuality could actually happen. And therefore, to them, they didn't recognize him because it was not at all something they even considered. I would imagine, even with the beard and with the accent and with the clothing, had they looked at, you know at him deeply and said, is this possible that this, this is actually Joseph that we sold many years prior? They would have recognized him. He's their brother after all. They also probably had beard. They looked kind of similar, I'm sure. Benjamin was his brother, same father, same mother. I'm sure he had a nice long flowing beard and they would look kind of similar. I'm sure had they considered for a second that Joseph was actually the guy in front of them, they would have recognized him. But they were so convinced You know, they had already made their decision. Joseph is not ending up as some sort of team that was going to bow down to them. They never considered it, and thus they never recognized them. Joseph starts to play games with them. This is interesting because Joseph is going to play a whole series of of games with them. And the question is why? What's he motivated by? So what does he tell them? He says he looks at them, these ten strapping young men, and he says, You're spies. He accuses them of being spies. You came to see the, the land's nakedness. They say, no, no, no. We came to buy food. We're all, we're all brothers. And whenever we're ne- we're spies, he says, no, you, you came to see the land's, uh, the flaws of the land so you could attack it. And they start giving him the whole batch story. The batch story is, well, we actually are 12 brothers and one father, but the one brother's gone and the other one's the baby and he's at home. And Joseph says, Oh, I see. Obviously, you're spies. You have another brother, this whole backstory, you didn't tell me about that when you got here. And he says, You know what? I'm going to test you. If you guys want to get out of here safely, you have to bring your last brother here before me. Otherwise, I swear on the life of Pharaoh that you're spies, and you're going to be maintained here, incarcerated, until your brother shows up. So it's interesting. First of all, what does he what does he want? He wants to see how they relate to Benjamin, and the reason is because Joseph doesn't hold any personal personal enmity towards his brothers. He, as we see later on, as we saw earlier, he believed it was all part of God's plan to bring him to the top. What he was concerned is: Did the brothers learn a lesson? Did they uh, overcome the the competition that exists between them? And did they look at Benjamin negatively because he was a brother of Joseph and they're from different mothers and they have the same problems that existed prior. Now, when he swears to them, he swears falsely, right? If you actually do the math, he says, I swear by the life of Pharaoh that you're spies. He knew they weren't spies. He knew that. But when he swore falsely, he said, by the life of Pharaoh, i.e., that's a bunch of nonsense as well. Pharaoh considers <coughs> considers himself a deity. That's not true. Thus, I can swear falsely, so to speak, in that realm. When Joseph actually swore truthfully, he linked it. He he he's kind of telling them, wink wink. I know this is not true, and thus I'll swear by something that's also not true because they're both false, and that's there's so an equivalence. Fact. To swear when you swear something that's true, you're creating an equivalence between what you're pledging and what is already fixed as true. So. Joseph tells them they're, they're spies, he puts them in prison for three days. After that, he pulls them out and says, you know what, I'm going to select one of you guys to stay here as a hostage. The rest of you could go back, I'll give you food, go back to Canaan. And when you come back, if you want to actually, uh, if you want to you take your brother out of uh, being a hostage, you want to redeem him, you have to bring your last brother for me to see. So he selects Shimon, but first the brothers talked amongst each other. So they, they're presented with this re- really bad situation. They're put in prison, all ten of them. Now one of them is to be a hostage. they got to bring Benjamin. We know that Jacob is not going to want that at all. And they start conversing amongst each other, and this is what they say. One said to the other, Indeed, we are guilty concerning our brother inasmuch as we saw his heartfelt anguish, anguish when he pleaded for us we paid no heed. This is why the anguish has come upon us. They're doing what Jews since then have done millions of times. It's a Jewish attitude. Something bad happens to you. You question, what did I do to deserve this? And they immediately knew the reason why they had to be subject to such treatment. They said, Joseph was pleading for his life and we were cruel to him. And that's why such anguish has to be for us, and Reuben reminds them, "Did I not speak to you? Do not sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen, and his blood as well. Behold, is being avenged." And I think this is really shows the remarkable greatness of these people. It's been twenty years since that episode. It's a long time, enough time to forget and move on. Yet they're still wrestling internally with justification of their previous behavior. And they're willing to admit guilt even 20 years after they were so sure that they were, that they were correct. The Talmud tells us when someone bad things happen to a person, they have to start inspecting their behavior to see what flaw of character and behavior caused this bad thing to befall upon them. Okay, so why Shimon? Why, why? So Joseph says, I'm going to take one of you brothers as a hostage and he selects Shimon. And that is not by chance, because if you remember, all the acts of aggression that have happened so far uh, amongst the family have been the product of Shimon and Levi together. Shimon and Levi were the ones who conspired to initially kill him and then to sell him. Shimon and Levi were the same ones that went uh, ballistic against the city of Shechem. He was worried that he has a whole plan uh, to bring about the fulfillment of the dreams and the ushering of the next era of Jewish life and ultimately building the Jewish nation. But he realized that there was a danger of Shimon and Levi uh, behaving, uh, just going wild, based upon what J- Joseph is asking of them, so he wanted to separate the two. So Therefore he said, okay, Shimon, you're going to be with me, and therefore, once you're not with your brother-in-arms, Levi, well, I'm not so worried that you guys are going to go start rampaging through the city, or who knows what else? You, you, you know, what other violence you may leave in your trail. So Joseph commanded that they fill their their vessels with grain, but also put the money back in there. Joseph's trying to stir the pot to see what happens uh, when he puts them into very compromising situations. So they, they put the fill fill the vessels with grain. Uh, they give them also provisions for the way. They send them off. All nine brothers are now going back to Canaan. On the way, one of them opened their sack and found the money. They were all nervous. What's going to be? You know, they, they, They're going to accuse us now of stealing the grain, not paying for it. They come to Jacob, they tell him the whole story, and they actually all of them inspect uh, their bags, and they find the money in the bags. Oh, they all have the money in their bags, so they're all terrified. They have a dialogue with Jacob, and they tell him the whole story, and Jacob's just perplexed. Well, Why would you tell him about these other brothers? Well, what were you thinking? Well, Are we supposed to know that he's going to ask us to bring him? We would never think of that about the land. They empty the sacks. Each one of them has their money. They see the money. They're terrified. Jacob is now just doing the math of his family. He's now Joseph is gone. Now Shimon's gone. You want to take Benjamin from me? What's going to be with me? And Ruvain proposes a solution. Reuven says, listen, I want to put it all together. I'm the oldest I want to say like this. You may slay my two sons if I fail to bring them back to you. Put Benjamin in my care and I'll guarantee his safety. If not, you could take my two sons. And Jacob is unmoved. He says, what's it going to do? What's it going to help me? Uh, I'm not going to send Benjamin with you. His brother is dead. He's the only one that's left to me from Rachel. I'm not going to allow him to go. And the famine got even worse. Things were even more, um, yeah, there were more needs. Jacob instructs them, go back to Egypt, get more food. They remind him, by the way, we can't go back unless we bring Benjamin. And now Judah, he proposes a different solution. Judah says, send the lad, lad with me, let us go, and we will live and not die. I will personally guarantee him. From my hand, you can demand him. If I don't bring him back to you and stand him before you, then I will have sinned to you for all time. For now, for had we not delayed, by now we would have returned already twice. So what Judah is proposing as well, that he be sent with, uh, with responsibility, he should be the guarantor of Benjamin, and, and Jacob actually accepts that. So this is interesting. Reuven made a very similar suggestion. He said, listen, give me my two sons, I'll give you my two sons, and they'll be the guarantee for your sons, for your two sons. So you, have, you have Shimon missing, now you're worried about Benjamin, I'll give you my two sons to show that I'll I, I too will be in the same boat. And Jacob is unmoved by that. Jacob is not motivated by that. Whereas Judah... Judah, he suggests that I will be indebted for you for all time, i.e. for this world and the next world, and then Jacob agrees. So It's interesting that Judah is actually offering more than Reuben. Ruven said the, two li- the lives of my two boys, so to speak. You have two boys missing, I'll, I'll put my two boys on the line. And that's a significant contribution or commitment like i'm i'm really guaranteed that i'll bring jo- benjamin back with my two sons that's significant but judah's offering even more he's saying i'll be indebted to you in this world and the next world i'll give up the entirety of myself so to speak for for this mission and that indeed is enough to give jacob the security to know that J- that jo judah will do everything within his power to bring him back But he advises them to go back with a bribe as well. Jacob is very well versed in how to dispense bribes to potential adversaries. He gives them a a bribe to bring back to the man, bring back double the money, one for the previous time that was returned, and one for the second time. And go take your brother. He allows Benjamin to go and go back to Joseph. And he prays that the Almighty will be with them and he sends them off. Joseph sees Benjamin and right away begins to test the sincerity of the brothers. So what do they do? What does he do? So first of all, they tell them that they, uh, you know, they tried to cover up the previous event. It must have been oversight. We had the money returned. They say not to worry about it. He brings Shimon out. Joseph has this meal with them. He asks them about their father. The father's okay. He sees Benjamin. He gives him a blessing. And Joseph is overwhelmed with emotions. He wants to get this over with because he's playing a game here, but it's hard because he's really he doesn't want to put his brothers through so much pain and suffering. He wants to let the story out, so to speak, that he's Joseph, and this is just all a ruse. So he leaves the room, he goes to weep, kind of freshes himself up, goes back, and he starts playing these more dance with them. He says, Okay, he sets sets the brothers down to sit and he puts them in order of age. And they're obviously perplexed. How did he do that? He says, Well, I'm, I looked at my goblet, and this is my this <laughs> this is my sorcery, and it tells me, oh, you're the oldest. He gives them he gives them to eat and to drink and he gives Benjamin an enormous amount to just see if there's still envy or jealousy towards them. They have a good time together. He fills their sacks as well with with food and so much goodness. And and then he tells them, put my silver goblet that I'm using a lot, put it in the satchel of the youngest one, Benjamin. And he drops, they drop the goblet that he was using earlier as a prop into the sack of Benjamin. Benjamin. Uh, after a wonderful, delightful stay in Egypt, the ten, the eleven sons now of Jacob are heading back. Judah is obviously relieved. Whew, we got through that peacefully. We have Shimon back. We have Benjamin back. We got all our food. The, the man seems to be a lot much friendlier to us. He's so happy. to give us blessings, and now they head off. And Joseph instructs his people, go chase after them. Overtake them and ask them, why do you repay evil for good? Not only man gives you to eat and to drink and food, but look how evil you've acted. And they say, well, what are you talking about? They say, well, look, you know, the, you stole the goblet from, from the king, from Joseph. And they say, what do you mean? Which one of us stole it? So they each lower their sack. They open their sack. They search. They start from the oldest. To add it to the tension and they start from the oldest and it's, it's fine, it's empty they go all the way down finally Benjamin they open it up they found the goblet and the brothers realize that it's all coming down to a crashing halt it's just disaster and devastation now Benjamin is going to be accused of stealing uh, the king's goblet they rip their clothing they get back on their donkey they turn around head back to the city Joseph starts screaming at them, why did you steal this from me? And they J- Judah says to him, what can we do? You know, we, we sinned. Obviously, we'll be slaves. All of us will be slaves from you. We'll be slaves forever. This is it. It's terrible. We're so guilty. And Joseph says, no, 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 no. You guys go back. You guys are fine. Benjamin, he's the one who stole the goblet. He's the one who's going to stay with me. Everyone else could go in pe- in peace And that's where the story ends.